0: Greetings, and indeed, salutations. Welcome to the Silence is Golden podcast, your home for discussion, analysis, and general geekery about silent film. I'm Brett Odom. And I'm Bryce Odom. And Bryce, we've made it to our third episode. I know. Some people didn't think we were going to make it this far. I appreciate that vote of confidence. Uh, But yes, we have have made here, and we're going to this week talk about one of the foundational films of science fiction metropolis from 1927
1: and this is a great one folks
0: this is a great one it's, this really is a great one and we we, we often talk about this like ah oh, you can start to see modern cinema popping in here uh this is definitely one of those films where you can say that this is a truly feature length film you go back to watch silent older silent films and sometimes they feel a little short this is not short
1: no, uh um, no, and it's also one of the first truly world-building films to ever be done. When yeah, it really is, created a whole whole different reality on film.
0: It, I mean it really it is really is work art. It's widely regarded now as a masterpiece. <coughs> Pardon me. It's uh of the uh of silent film of the genre. Uh directed by Fritz Lang, written by Thea Van. Uh, Thea von Habau uh, with Fritz Lang. Uh, it took about 17 months to film this movie between 1925 and 1926 and cost 19 million euros in today's money. So this was a big production. It was a big undertaking. Uh, the fact that we're still talking about it here, here uh, almost a century later uh, tells you that they pulled it off. So uh, so as usual, we'll start. I'm gonna I'm gonna continue talking here a little bit about the background. Well, for Bryce, uh, I'll let you take over to kind of walk us through the film as a whole uh, before we dive into a bit more detailed analysis.
1: I know that's every uh, favorite part. I mean
0: it, it Bryce, any time any time I get to spend with you is is my favorite part. <laughs> I don't I don't know how I feel that you laugh that hard. Anywho, uh, so the film film st- stars a, gr- a wonderful cast uh, in this Weimar Republic film. So this is from the this is from The Inner Warriors from Germany, much like Nosferatu was, uh, from uh, from our last episode, uh, starring Gustav Fröhlich as Freder, Bridget Helm as Maria, and The Machine Man. Uh, they're the lead roles with Alfred Abel. As Joe Frederson, the master of Metropolis, and Rudolf Klein Rogue uh, as the inventor, uh, Rutong. Rutong, I'm slaughtering his name, so my apologies. Uh, being apart being a from the Weimar era, this film is steeped in German expressionism, uh, lots of gothic and futuristic elements really blending together to create the distinct worlds. Bryce, you mentioned about the world building. Uh, this definitely plays in here with the world above in this gorgeous, beautiful utopian metropolis being very futuristic. But of course, uh, in this world, it is powered by the labor of those down below in the depths, which has a much more Gothic taste to it. In this world, uh, the unrest down below uh, meets the complacency of those up above. and, ev- and things are brought to a head by the machinations of the, in- of the inventor, Ru- uh, Ruterang, Ruterang, I'm sorry, I'm just going to slaughter his name all night. Uh, but the inventor uh, creates a machine man who they give the likeness up to the likeness of Maria to rile up the, uh, the masses Maria herself is seen something as a saint figure among the masses, uh, the machine man instead takes her place. And riles them up into disaster. Yes, I know, uh, Bryce. You're going to go into more detail on that, but I, uh, just, I just w- to establish just a little bit about what's going on to talk about that gothic versus futuristic element. Y'all can't see, y'all can't see, Bryce. This is a podcast, but he is throwing his hands up at me, going, "Wait, this is my part. Yeah, <laughs> you, you get to go in more detail. <laughs> yes, yes, Bryce. yeah." I was, I was like, uh, Brett. This is, uh, this is my yes, job. Y- I. I <laughs> That's the one-sentence summary, so y'all know what I'm talking about here as I'm going through uh, kind of the background of the film. Bryce will expand on it beyond uh, one sentence. Uh, Like I said, this is foundational sci-fi, but like so much foundational works in any genre, uh, in its own time, it was, in fact, quite mixed. Uh, H.G. Wells, who himself is foundational to
1: sci-fi, found the film naive. Uh, The New York Times (laughs) called Okay. Which is interesting, he found it naive as it does, the world building itself is very similar to the world building he did in Time Machine of these, of uh, the- uh, uh, society developing so distinctly, not just in terms of class, but those classes being one above ground and one below ground.
0: Yeah, I, I thought the same thing. It's a very Time Machine world, but he does interestingly think uh, that... Apparently he 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 didn't he thought it odd that how it depicted the drug that machine the machines would create drudgery rather than freeing us from labor, huh. uh, which I suppose is is a fairly modern take on what machines would do. Machines free up labor. This in the world that we see, it's not so much. Uh, very much feels like my like going down into the mines when they go to work on the machines. But anyway, he found it naive the New York Times called it a technical marvel with feet of clay. Um, and the New York, but the New York Herald Tribune found it a weird and fascinating picture. So this this was really had quite a mixed reception. Uh, one one reviewer, and I, I don't quite remember where they were, basically commented that it has so much symbolism that it doesn't really mean anything, which uh, is fascinating, Except, but I realized they were right because I was sitting here in the 21st century going, ah, this is a movie with a lot of like, anti-communism but welfare liberalism buys like if we don't take care of people you know we will end up with a revolution so let's let's take care of people but then at the same time it was heavily edited um because it people thought it had communist overtones whereas i'm sitting here thinking it's anti-communist and then of course even the nazis liked it because they thought it was made germany look strong and all that uh so if, we, if everyone can look at something and find something to take away with it from that diverse group of people, uh, yeah, I, I, I sympathize with the notion that it has so much symbolism, it doesn't mean anything. But that said, it has a 97% on Rotten Tomatoes uh, to this day, so uh, its reputation has definitely strengthened over time. Uh, it was... Heavily edited in its own time to the point that Lang did not like to He did not go see it any if he was in England or America. He refused to go see it because he thought they had butchered his work. Hmm. Uh, and it wasn't until the early two thousands that a a recovered version of it from Argentina allowed a a restoration process to restore the film to ninety five percent. So like Bryce and I, I, we both watched the complete Metropolis, which is this version that ninety five percent of the film. Was restored to, so we really do have something quite close to Fritz Lang's vision uh, in his early days, uh, and as a influential foundational work of sci-fi film, it has continued to echo through. In terms of world building, it has echo- it echoes uh, through all sorts of uh, works to come. Uh, you know, the general it was a generation after this that we really start to get more people dealing with the notion of robots and intelligence and the mix and the mixing of of uh, you know of human of what what is it you know the difference between machine that we can't tell is human androids all these things all these themes that become very important in mid twentieth century sci fi uh, find a beginning here in Metropolis. Uh, and it's a little, a little bit of a of, of a rambling uh, look at uh, the behind the scenes and the influence of this film. Bryce, why don't you tell us a little bit about what actually happened in this very, as we said, very long film? <laughs>
1: uh, yeah, it, and it is. Uh, uh, our first couple films were both around an hour long. This one is almost, um, the original cut of it was like two minute shot. It was like minute 58 or something, or an hour 58 or something like that. Um, so this is a much, this is a, a truly feature-length film. And it begins with us, this gorgeous shot of just drudgery. Um, the workers are leaving the factory, going to the elevator, taking down the worker's city, which is below ground, and they are shuffling. I mean, but it's an almost rhythmic shuffle um, as they all, as you can see, packs of people. And it really... It just visually drives home the fact that in this society, these workers are not really considered that human by at least a portion of society. Uh, and then this is contrasted with our first look at Freder, um Freder, who is uh, the the master of Metropolis' his son. Then um Freder is and uh, the, the text on the movie describes his pleasure palaces in the skyscrapers. And in fact, yeah, we, for our first look at him is in a room with a fountain. Um, there is some woman who looks vaguely like a flapper. Um, and they are clearly there uh, for pleasure. And, um, and I would say as close as the 1920s movies can get to showing that two people are about to go to bed. Um, when suddenly the doors bust open and this woman walks in with a herd of children. Uh, she's got this little gaggle of children with her. And she says, these are your brothers. And everyone else is just taken aback except Freder. Frader's not taken aback because he sees this woman who is Maria and her eyes, in particular, are captivating. And This is something uh, that uh, the makeup, particularly for Maria throughout the movie, is spot on. Early on in the movie, especially when we first meet her, the makeup really makes her eyes pop. And it draws you in and it makes, uh, and it helps you make sense of why Freighter just suddenly, why, you know, this woman who, she's not dressed particularly fancy. She's not, you know... Nothing particularly out the ordinary, but those eyes draw you in uh, deeply. And the the children go, and he's like, who is that? And it's like just some woman from the worker city. But he doesn't let it go, and he, he questions his father a little bit about what's going on. And his father's like, look, they're workers. They're right little places below the city. Forget about all this crap. And but he doesn't, and his, he sneaks down to see uh, this, the worker city for himself. He, he's hoping to catch a glimpse of this woman again. Um, and the fir- there's a couple different times in this movie where Freder has hallucinations, and there's this very brief hallucination where he sees the Temple of of Morlock, uh, Moloch, which is a uh, idol demon of the old testament um who worship of him may have involved child sacrifice which is a really big foreshadowing for this movie um as will become clear and freighter uh though follows her down and uh fine eventually uh decides to work a day and is just realizes what these workers do on a daily basis is insane. And he ends up at a meeting of the workers where Maria speaks to them and talks about that they need to have patience. Things will get better if they can mediate the head, the upper class, and then the hands, the worker class, which she says must only be done by the heart. And in this meeting, Maria and Freder actually meet and have an instant connection. She says, all right, well, um. Meet me here tomorrow at the cathedral. Except this whole time, the, his father has come to visit a eccentric inventor who has been a, clearly a kind of backdoor advisor to the master metropolis. And he has invented a robot that can take the form of man. And he has, he has an, inten- uh, an intention about this to bring back his lost love, kind of creepy um but the master convinced them, no no we need the workers are getting uppity maybe put that back, back down in place we need an excuse to bring violence upon them to put them back down and use this robot to impersonate that woman who's getting them all to be peaceful and get her to rile them up so they'll be criminals and then we'll just come in with brute force put them back down in their place so he so the inventor uh kidnaps Maria. And we have one of the greatest scenes in silent films. Uh, If any of y'all follow me on YouTube, which hopefully you do, if you don't, follow me at uh, Odom at underscore, uh, excuse me, Odom underscore author on YouTube. Um, I put a trailer out for the show and I use this shot in the trailer for Metropolis. Energy is flying all over the place um, as Maria is hooked up to this machine. uh, The the inventor is basically trapped Freighter so he can't get to Maria in a kind of a maze of doors. And all this energy is flying about and suddenly the robot turns into Maria. And this is wonderful close up on the robot's face. And then it turns to her face with her eyes closed and they open. And it's this just gorgeous, gorgeous scene. and, uh, and it's, it's one of those scenes that if you don't think you've ever seen Metropolis, you probably have seen this clip. Um, and the inventor unleashes him, uh, unleashes this evil Maria onto the people of the worker city to get him to rile him up. Except it works too well. She doesn't just rile them up. She gets them to r- rile them up. Let's go destroy everything. Well, destroying everything uh, can destroy – if they destroy the, all the power and everything, then uh, the machines that are, are keeping the water from flooding the worker city are going to go boom, and the worker city is going to flood. But they're so riled up by this evil Maria that they don't care, and they do destroy the city. And the foreman tries to – what are you doing? If destroying this destroys your own homes. And they do it anyway. And at about this moment, they reveal not a man or woman was left in Worker City. They, however, left all their children behind. And Maria escapes about the time that the factory is being blown up by the workers. Freighter is finally managing to get out and back down. um, And after having another crazy hallucinatory dream, uh, is able to get back down in the Worker City. And he and Maria reunite with this uh, just mob of children around around them, begging for help. And uh, along with uh, Freighter's friend, uh, Jehoshaphat, who was a uh, guy who got fired by his father at the beginning of the movie, um, the three of them saved the children, unbe- and it, to start with, unbeknownst to the workers. So the workers finally come to their senses, and they go uh, and they march onto the city, uh, onto the c- city above ground, and find the evil Maria, and the makeup I mentioned earlier is really great here because now they've changed the makeup on her just so ever so slightly, and the acting changes with uh, with this as well. She's maniacal now instead of peaceful and you know where her heart was on her sleeve. She's now maniacal and laughing uh, evilly uh, in this gr- just again kind of jazz age party of uh, you know you know hedonistic. And But they storm there, they manage to get the evil Maria, and they strap her to a post. They're about to burn her at the stake. And Freighter doesn't realize uh, he, that it's the fake Maria. He's trying to save her. But then they all realize that the, mach- the skin all burns off, and they see the, the, the hollowed-out machine left behind in the fire. Um, and you would think this might be the end of the movie, except it's not. About the same moment, the, the inventor has actually started to go crazy. And the whole girlfriend he was hoping to bring back, he's now hallucinating and think it's the real Maria um, who he's caught up with uh, and is chases up along a very gothic-looking rooftop. Freighter runs up there. They fight. And finally, uh, Rotwang, Rot again, I don't know how to say his name either, um, is thrown from the building, and he dies. And Freighterson, uh, John Freighterson, the master of Metropolis, is uh relieved beyond all uh all relief that his son is alive he thought he had died in the flood and the mediation of the hands and and the brain happen between uh as the uh here at at the end of the movie where the the foreman and and friederson are brought to an understanding with each other and that is the end of the movie
0: so much it, is running is going on <laughs> so much is going well i guess let's start there uh because you mentioned the end of the film uh ends on this famous end uh, on this famous uh title screen uh, the mediator between the head and the hands must be the heart yeah. uh this is absolutely the line this line is is very famous it captures the spirit of the film which is like I like I said I, f- I found watching in the 21st century this very kind of welfare liberal li- liberalism that was particularly prominent in the era that essentially says if we don't like mediate the problems of the period we end up with a revolution we don't want that so let's 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 get everybody on the same page let's take care of people let's let's not treat the working class like they are liter- like they are lesser uh, like uh Frederson was doing at the start of the film uh. You know, but that, that's, uh, like I said, that is fair. That is apparently quite not a universal interpretation. Certainly not in its own time. Uh, so what did this all exactly means. Uh, and it's got a little bit for everyone to draw from it. Uh, it's not like even after all of this happens, John Frederson does not come out looking good in any of this.
1: No. Uh, he, he is the head. He literally uh, incited a mob that almost committed genocide
0: exactly i mean so it's like the effort his efforts to crush the working class led the working class to find strength and to rise up uh thus why you can see why uh as people took it to have a communist meaning. uh but at the same time this is a movie about powerful people you know the wi- having great will which is what uh that and just it being a work of German art, of ma- a masterpiece of German art meant the Nazis embraced it, which Fritz Lang apparently did not care for. I don't No one likes that. Uh, no one likes it when the Nazis like your work, to be honest. But uh,
1: Right. Like, um, like, like to such an extent that, you know, the, you know, if they were everyone, um, every art historian uh, and philosopher story ever heard. Nietzsche and Wagner, who were both beloved by the Nazis, everyone I've ever heard says, no, they would have hated the Nazis. (laughs) Um, Even even Wagner, who was also an anti-Semite, apparently would have hated the Nazis. But Nietzsche in particular uh, was beloved by the Nazis. And he's like, yeah, like nothing the Nazis stood for was what Nietzsche meant. (laughs) So no one likes the Nazis. It's a good rule of thumb. If the Nazis like your work, maybe you did something wrong
0: or uh, in this case this was just i think again it's just it is such a hodgepodge of symbolism uh throughout the film that it can have so many meanings uh so i i will give i maybe you did something wrong. well i'm not gonna say that he did something <laughs> wrong but, <that laughs> he did, he did indeed, uh, uh but he 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 left things uh he he perhaps was too opaque uh the but you know, he mixed in with the social comedy a deep spiritual commentary as well, which is where Maria is a quasi religious figure. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, Fredder uh, is he? Is, uh, he is himself a prophesized figure. He is this mediate she maria prophesies that a mediator will come to bring peace to uh, between bring peace and justice to them oh and she almost immediately
1: just like eyeballs freighter the moment she
0: says like up there he is you are anointed it's like the (laughs) you are anointed this is about a sci-fi this is a sci-fi movie with a fantasy trope right here um and that's that said it's 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 hard to tell whether or not it was intentional but Freder's journey into the depths to see the worker's City. It is a very Siddhartha leaving the palace kind of story, mm-hmm. and Om, I mean, it hits enough of the notes of it that I don't think it's an ac- an accident. He goes down and he sees suffering, he sees sickness, and he sees death. He sees the very things that Siddhartha uh, Siddhartha sees when he leaves the palace on his to begin the journey to becoming the Buddha. Right, uh, and this is the very thing that. Uh, Frederick sees when he goes down and begins his journey toward becoming the mediator. It's hard to not see this as an ac- uh, uh, as an accident. <laughs> I, mean, yeah. th- I mean, this seems very intentional. Uh, and and uh, even while they're mixing with its strong Catholic imagery, because her name is Maria, and she cares for the work she cares for and intercedes on behalf of the people. If that's not the Virgin Mary, I don't know what
1: is. <laughs> and and <laughs> You know, there is a chance, and, you know, I, and this is me literally just thinking off the top of my head right now, so this is not me having done research, um, but um, Hermann Hess, who was a prominent German novelist, did write his book Siddhartha, which came out in 1922. So it is reasonable to think that Fritz Lang, who was also German, uh, may have read the novel and that whole idea of Siddhartha leaving the palace could have some Hermann Hesse influence. Now, again, I do not know what Fritz Siddhartha no. is reading, but it is a potential possibility. Just throwing it out there.
0: The, uh, well, and that's this was also the time of the Theosophic, the Theosophic Movement, which was a quasi-new religious, Eastern religious movement that was popular in the West um, that drew a lot of inspiration from Hinduism, Buddhism, and Eastern religion broadly um so they, it was in the firmament at the time so it's not hard to see it making its way into uh cinema um uh, you know i've I, though I mentioned maria i they were i mean she where she preaches in the in the catacombs there are crosses so it's very clear she's associated with the religion and the, the notion of a mediator as much as i compared fredder to buddha this is also a very very jesus christ vibe yeah uh so, you know, there's a strong spiritual comment going along with the strong social commentary, which I think is one of the reasons that it's so easy to read whatever message you want into it. This mm-hmm. is not necessarily a bad thing. It's because the social commentary is not necessarily you know, in any story social uh, symbolism, social commentary is as much a construct of us, the viewers, the, con- the consumers, as it is the artist. So who knows what he really meant. That's, uh, we're not here to say one way or the other is the right or the wrong way, but uh, I, w- I do wonder if this very strong spiritual component that's also being shoved into the movie is one of the reasons that the actual social commentary gets a little clouded. Uh, but let's, but speaking of Maria, Bridget Helm is the actress playing Maria, and she also plays the machine man version. Uh, she plays the machine man anytime, even when it doesn't look like Maria; it just looks like the robot. That's her. Uh, yeah, which I like, thought was
1: really surprising. Um, you know, thought it was a
0: prop until I saw the pictures. Getting ready yeah. for this episode, I was like, oh, that was her every time.
1: Oh, that's and amazing. It, it, it is amazing, and it also doesn't make a ton of sense um, that it had to be her uh, unless she really wanted it to be, um, or Fritz Lang, who was notoriously demanding, uh, may have uh, forced it upon her because um, she only moves in the in the costume in one scene
0: yeah. one one of the one of the pictures i saw saw them like tr- clearly like trying to keep her hydrated and cool right so yeah i can
1: see the demanding but
0: bridget is acting first of all bridget helm is acting everyone in this movie under the table oh she, she is, is she's she the is, best
1: actress in this movie um heads and shoulders over everyone yeah
0: over every uh partially because her the subtlety of her acting of having to portray two characters, one of whom is an impersonation of her other character. Right. Uh, that's in- it's incredible. Like you mentioned the makeup. It, def- like it highlights her eyes a bit more. But it's uh, when she is the Machine Man version of Maria. But she's not only got this eye, but it's her whole demeanor. She becomes, she becomes looser. And yeah. as you put it, maniacal.
1: Yeah, like one of, her, one of her first actions is to wink. Mm-hmm. Uh, when she's talking she, with uh, John Frederson. one of her first things she does uh, in a close-up is wink, which the real Maria, and there's something in that wink that is deceptive, um, and Mar- the real Maria is not, there's not a deceptive bone in that woman's body. No, and Maria is pure and honest. And
0: she is, of course, obviously, you know, maniacal and evil. She has a way of like clutching to her breast that's very suggestive, for, as, or at least as suggestive as 1920s cinema is going to let her
1: be. So it's yeah, like. Which she's also, a, there are a lot of those actions w- uh, could have been interpreted as clutching her heart, um, uh, since she is the heart character.
0: Well, I mean, I mean the, as the machine, the machine man, when oh, she's when she's the villain, she has a way of like I, being suggestive in the way she like clutches at her collar and things.
1: Mm-hmm. Again,
0: at uh, this, is, I say suggestive. This is like, you know, there's the famous scene in a John Wayne movie where uh, the woman takes off her shoes, and that is as far as they get to suggesting that they are going to take off more than her shoes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So it's, So, you know, so the times allowed only for so much, but they certainly took, you know, there's nonetheless just the subtle way she moves and way she gestures Mm -hmm. uh, that are just incredible. And it adds incredible depth to the film and, again, just leads to her acting everyone else under the table. She's fantastic. Uh, Arguably, I would argue that the only other person who's coming close is Alfred Abel, who's who's the master of Metropolis. Uh, Joe Frederson with much, uh, because,
1: with much less
0: makeup which is why I think he does such a good. I, I before we were talking I mentioned Bryce to you that uh, Freighter looks a lot like Hutter from Nosferatu like there is something about german expressionist films that caused them to do men's makeup this way that is very weird and very unnatural to be honest uh and i'm like but you see with his father who looks like a normal person that this is apparently not a requirement you don't have to make people look like that you can make them look like humans and as a result he does very well he has, a, he has a really subtle performance about him and where he just establishes authority because he is the master of Metropolis. Yeah, uh, so like people hang on his every word and he, he manages to portray that really you know, well.
1: When he fires uh, Jehoshaphat, who again becomes Freighter's best friend in the movie, um, he fires him without ever looking angry. And yet you just know Oh, a world—a world where getting fired
0: causes you not merely to lose your job, but to like be sent down below and cast out into the lower cast. And it, this is not a—this is not a utopia, my friend. This is a dystopia, yeah. and this is no this and is bad. He,
1: oh, and it's—but he does it with such wonderful understatement, and which is mm. hard to do when you're doing yeah. film acting. But he does it with such—just uh, manages this whole scene where he is disappointed angry in charge powerful and he does and it heartless so and heartless he does it so subtly it's wonderful mm-hmm. um and yeah so yeah definitely he, he's the second best actor in the movie uh, by far um yeah there's I, and the,
0: most of the other characters like freighter get uh they do get to overtaken by that german expressionism tendency toward uh exaggeration and extreme um uh, you you know the most famous arguably the most famous cinematic work of german expressionism is a film we haven't watched yet which we undoubtedly will at some point uh the cabinet of dr caligari mm-hmm. which is very much defined by these by makeup that is very exaggerates facial expressions by sets that exact that uh bring focal point uh that bring focal points uh for the viewer and are very exaggerated in terms of things and you see all of that happening here but you you said especially they were overtaking most of the other men characters with this makeup that really highlights you know their facial expressions uh very stylized uh the the inventor is of course he looks like a classic mad scientist kind of guy yeah. um so you know a trope is born uh <laughs> uh uh, and so yeah, so it's like I, th- fantastic. But even you know, even from them, it's like I think that's a thing that has not aged as well uh, in, over time. I'm sure at the time no one thought much of it, but uh, you know they still still fantastic acting even from them. Freighter uh, does Freighter. He does fall in love at first sight. Uh, welcome to the yeah another trope is born. Although I, d- I think that trope predates Metropolis by quite a bit, Um <laughs> uh, but uh, the. Uh, but he he does he does a fantastic job of becoming immersed in the world of yeah. seeming to be someone who genuinely cares and is alarmed to discover what he discovers. Uh, the inventor's just he uh, that actor he's just the, he's the villain. He just has to look the villain,
1: and he's the maniacal laughing villain. Uh, and uh, and you, you mentioned being immersed in the world. Let's talk about the world. Uh, yeah let's talk about these sets we can't talk about metropolis without talking about these sets Mm -hmm. um the uh this is a movie that in order to create the upper world uh the wide shots for the upper world uh the upper city uh used intricate models they were moving the train there were trains that moved cars were moving in the streets there was a blimp uh, floating through the city because germans loved their zeppelins um
0: Where's my airships? The few, They keep promise me airships in the future, and I keep we not having
1: airships. We, we don't get the flying car, and we don't have airships. It's just we, we've been robbed.
0: This um, is a crime.
1: It is very much a crime, who we talk to. Um, but in addition to that is also famously the worker city, or not the worker city, um, the, the factory, which is huge. It's not a small set with a painted background. It was a two-story set that they built up into this. Now, the, the the machines that they're using make no logical sense. But they're big. There's steam coming out of everything. And when a freighter goes down in the beginning, he witnesses an accident occurring uh, where a guy can't keep his station. He, he collapses out of exhaustion and he uh, and his station ends up blowing up and you see people float, mm-hmm. and you see people like act. you see actual actors flying off the top balcony to the bottom balcony. So the special effects, uh, you know, were used on these giant sets to create uh, incredible action. And then um, the worker city is probably the least developed of all the sets, which is a little bit of a shame. Uh, because it's played such a prominent role at the end, um, but you even get this on. Uh, but you even get these one really brief moment intricate sets. Um, the cathedral's uh, the uh, not quite brief moment here. The cathedral uh, is very intricate um, and is used twice. But you see uh, an actual figure of death who. In a, in a, one of Freighter's hallucinations. But Freighter's first hallucination as an intricately burning temple, open mouth demon kind of th- looking thing. Um, but it's the factory and it's the factory gears, basically like chewing up people. And uh, Freder refers to it as Moloch, I believe is what he called it, um, which is a demon or, go- uh, or uh, false God from the Bible. Uh, in the Old Testament, who, according to tradition, was uh, as I, I think I said this earlier, but according to, uh, tr- to tradition, Moloch was worshipped by uh, human sacrifice, and so the workers are uh, in this human in this uh, hallucination are feeding human sacrifice, which is exactly what they do. They they lose their temper so much that they almost sacrifice their own children, um, but you get this foreshadowing through this just crazy one brief crazy moment of this huge set. Um, And you just, again, everything is so big that it just really you have to watch it to understand it because nothing like this was done really uh, to this extent in the 1920s. Yeah.
0: It reminded me of very much of the, of the biblical and historic epics uh, that were so popular in that, time and in or er, in golden age hollywood uh, the think of uh, uh uh you know think of the grand sets of ten Commandments and stuff like that from later on mm-hmm. uh, you know uh, other uh many of the great American directors and uh early directors would be would also be doing like these grand temples and pyramids and uh you know that's what this reminds me of but instead of be looking into the past he is looking into this vision of the future uh which is what again one of the things that makes metropolis so distinct uh it's this early work of sci-fi
1: yeah uh yeah they're they're a pre- uh, they're a predecessor yeah to things like ten commandments ben her spartacus um but all those movies were period pieces and they had to invent all this. And that just makes it even more impressive. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that said, it's not a work without f- its own flaws. We talked about the fact that it, the meanings, act, uh, you know, the metaphors are so many that they be- the meaning of the film becomes contradictory. Um, I would also say that the, um, the hallucination of Freighter, um, by doing so much and it being all so big... Um, at times the visuals don't um, connect from uh, the story seamlessly. And I think that's particularly done in the first hallucinations. Um, I, it took me probably three times rewinding the Moloch hallucination in the beginning to finally realize this wasn't something actually happening. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah wait, I, wait,
0: I, I, she- I did kind of, I kind of did a devil dig with it too. It's like, it's like, wait, What's going on? And that, that's and I've seen the movie before, and like I still had to go like wait, what's yeah. happening here again?
1: And um, and I would say the second big hallucination, which is after, which happens when, um, Freighter sees the evil Maria, with her father, or with his father, um, and he thinks something's going on that Maria's come up and betrayed him, and he just passes out and goes into this hallucination. And while the hallucination looks cool, as everything in the movie looks cool, um, in an already long movie, it sets up a. It ends up being a fairly long digression that is flipping between hallucination, and reality, and it's not always. Uh, it's not always well done of what is reality and what's the hallucination.
0: No, I mean sometimes
1: you know. Yeah, he's. He's not
0: focused. This is not a focused story. <laughs> right. He uh, he has. I mean, the, the, the logic behind the machine man uh, that becomes the evil Maria is, you know, like you mentioned, is that this is, oh, well, this looks like hell, who I think is... Yeah. All um, a bit confusing and not, not really laid out, but it's like, oh, this is, this is his wife, who the inventor also loved. And it's like, okay, so now we've got a love triangle with a dead woman? Yeah. Uh, and it's like that is just kind of shoot. There is no real reason for this to be the case, given that they do not make they do not make the machine woman into her. They make her into Maria. Right. <laughs> who is clearly a stand in for hell, but is not hell. And so it's yeah. like just this like what it's like you have you have shoehorned this weird love triangle for the villains in <laughs> the story for yeah. the woman who does not appear in the film. I mean, it's like, what are you doing? Please stop. Yeah.
1: And they and of course, you know, they're not using just any name for that woman either. Um, you know, it's it's hell. It's not Helga, it, it's Hell, which is the Norse god of the underworld. Um it, the Norse god of the dead.
0: It, Congratulations. It's like, yeah, it's like y'all just this is a movie with a lot of symbolism. This movie with a lot of symbolic always makes sense. It's a movie with a lot of extraneous plot lines. I feel a little bit like this is when Thor goes on his vision quest in Age of Ultron. Yeah, it's a wonderful movie, and then here we are. Here we are going off on a tangent that has nothing to do with the rest of the film. Exactly. Okay. Uh, and because, uh, like, there's no reason it, it could have just been these two people getting together for any reason any other reason and decide hey we're going to use this new machine thing to screw with the screw the workers are you game bro yeah bro let's do this
1: that could have been the conversation instead 19, 1920s it, germans calling each other bro look it up people I'm, it's a historical fact
0: it absolutely is a historical fact and so instead the frat bro instead the frat bros uh complain about how you know they both have the same ex and that is in fact the story we have yeah. uh I don't. It's weird. Uh, it, it's just one of those things. Like I thought was so strange. I, I, you know, I've I've always been like that's such a weird decision, Fritz.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: um, I do it, think it' interesting, you know, and I just I do think it's interesting how uh both, but how universally praised the film is really today. Uh, sc- uh what is it? Sc- uh, sound and screen. Uh, which uh. A, uh, rated it as the 35th greatest movie of all time. So it's it's high up in its rankings. Uh, the uh like I said, 97% of Rotten Tomatoes, but at the same time, I totally sympathize with the mixed reviews mm-hmm. of the time. Like, yeah, no, I get the naivete comment. That was that was a, several people. Lang himself seems to have had that complaint later on when he kind of disavowed the fact that he helped to write the film. Uh, he didn't like take total no credit, but he did kind of shove off that onto the writer, Thea uh, von uh, H- Habau, instead of taking on responsibility himself. Um, but yeah, no, it definitely is like, oh yes, because the solution to the working class being brutally oppressed in this city is a negotiated settlement with their oppressors. Okay. Uh, you know, th- there is a strong naïve. I, I think I, I totally get why that scene is naïve in this very, the between the head and the hands must be the heart. At the same time, I, you know, it's, like I said, it's like I th- thought that was very emblematic of the kind of welfare state liberalism that was prominent of the period, you know, the FDRs and the continental European liberalism that was being born. That That was the whole point. It was like, if we don't, if we don't take care of, Take care of people; they will revolt, and then we have revolution, and that is bad. So let's and, not
1: have that. Yeah, and, and here's something else that makes that all that fluff feel worth. Like the movie is a classic, and is an all, and is going to be, and should, and should rightfully be remembered as one uh, because of its visual and technical uh, heights that it took cinema to that had really never been done before. Um, but the message of the film. Um, is undercut by the way the director, uh, uh, Fitz Lang, um, treated his actors. Um, he was famously hard on all his actors, very demanding on his actors, but most famously in this movie, uh, for all the children in the flooding worker city, he cast, and so he wouldn't have to pay them much, cast, the, uh, cast children from the poorest parts of Berlin. And then the water for those scenes was kept incredibly cold the entire time and they were taking several shot uh takes on every scene they shot down there so he wasn't treating workers well either um you wish this
0: message would have sunk into him a little bit right
1: it's like you made a whole movie about how you should treat people well and you treated people like crap um so lang is an interesting human being because of the message he was trying to tell and completely failed to live up to um, uh yeah uh in oh. fact um uh, according uh bridget helm who, uh, who again played the machine woman she fainted in one scene because they took too long on the on the shot and uh she was enclosed in the armament and so she didn't get enough air and she fainted
0: uh, this sounds like working with Stanley Carebrook, except yeah. The this is,
1: um, and so, ladies and gentlemen uh, of the jury, this is why we now have things like the Screen Actors Guild, <laughs> unions. <laughs> this is why we have unions, people. Uh,
0: so yeah, so that's uh, yeah. So this it, it it like, and we we've already touched on. You know, this is foundational. It does. This is the beginning of a lot of themes that will really carry over into mid twentieth century sci fi um you know honest honestly the the visual of him is you see, the visual of the robot of the machine man uh, we'll see i think is very influential in how maybe not in Isaac Asimov's personal writing but certainly in how his robots have been portrayed in cinema yeah uh, i think e- echoes echoes this and just establishing that sci-fi is something that can really be done on on stage we've talked about the world building the bringing to life, a futuristic Android thing, whatever you want to call it, uh, you know that that's all that's all landmark, and that's all things that will be replicated going forward. And you know, they run because Metropolis walked with it. Yep. All right. Well, I think I know we're we're getting close to time here. Uh, we will uh, go away from Continental Europe uh, next uh, next time. Wait, they made uh, movies not in Europe, and believe it or not, they made them in a place called America. We're going to be coming across the pond. I'm uh, shocked to, I know, I'm stunned. Uh, but we're going we're we're going to move over to America to uh, next time to watch the classic Phantom of the Opera starring Lon Chaney, uh, and that's so that's where we'll be picking up within two weeks' time. It's uh, Bryce. It's been great getting to talk about Metropolis with you.
1: Always uh, fun to uh, to explore uh, world building. Um, I'm a huge fan of anything that involves world building, uh, as anyone who uh, follows me and uh, reads my books uh, may or may not know. Well, uh, Bryce, where,
0: Bryce, say it one more time for for everybody. Where can they find you on uh, on the social medias?
1: Uh, you, you can find me and uh, in my books and everything I'm up to at jryceodom.com. You can follow me on Facebook at j, uh j, uh, j Odom, uh, or you can follow me on Instagram and YouTube at J underscore author. And you can find
0: uh, find uh, me and and the podcast at silence gold pod on Twitter. You can also email us at Silence is Golden podcast at gmail.com. Well, that's, that's, all, that's all we have for y'all today. Thanks for joining us here on Silence is Golden's discussion of Metropolis. I'm Brett Odom. And I'm Bryce Odom. And we'll see you next time.